The Tom Woods Show, episode 1422. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, the great and heroic Bob Murphy has a brand new book out, Contra Krugman, Smashing the Errors of America's Most Famous Keynesian. This thing is going to give you a ton of intellectual ammunition. Plus, throw Bob a bone here. I mean, before I crush him in the debate we're doing aboard the Contra Cruise, at least let him get a book sale or two. Check it out at ContraKrugmanBook.com. And I am the narrator of the audiobook version. How about that? You can get that for free through the Audible offer at TomWoodsAudio.com. At any rate, get all the details at ContraKrugmanBook.com. Hey, everybody, Tom Woods here. We're talking today about the America First Committee, which is a very, very controversial organization that favored non-intervention at the beginning of the Second World War. Now, after the attack on Pearl Harbor, they closed their doors and no longer opposed the intervention. And in fact, numerous people, including Charles Lindbergh and Kurt Vonnegut, who had been involved in the America First Committee, went ahead and wound up fighting for the United States in the war. But they had favored non-intervention. And that, of course, is not the mainstream view today. So it so happens that our guest, Ben Lewis, who is a contributing editor for the Austro-Libertarian magazine that's out, it's just called Austro-Libertarian, and it's fantastic, has an article on that topic in the current issue. So I thought we would explore it a bit. Ben, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back, Tom. Well, you've picked quite a topic here. These are not the world's most popular people. This is true. But they did get some attention during the 2016 campaign because Trump used the phrase America first. And that, of course, calls to mind the experience of the America First Committee. And you did see even NPR, I have to say, it was interesting to see, uh, saying that it's a mixed bag here and you shouldn't just assume the worst about these people, that actually there were a lot of very, very prominent Americans, Americans almost everybody admires who were involved in it. So before you turn on your outrage, your outrage spigot, stop and listen for five seconds. So uh, interested about what led you down this road to to write an article about some of the most hated people in American history. (laughs) Well, um, it kind of started with my I was thinking about the way that non-interventionists and libertarians kind of approached the topic of World War II. And that led me to consider some of the arguments that people at the time were making against interventionism. And so it just was kind of blossomed out of a general interest in the topic and how libertarians can make and non-interventionists more generally can make better arguments uh, than we currently do on, on that topic. And And I was really impressed with the complexity of the non-interventionist movement uh, at that time, because as you say, it's it's not simply that they were uh, single issue or or were influenced by some foreign country. They had a lot of different reasons, and they disagreed among themselves about what the right reasons were for being anti-interventionist. And I think if you consider their position in in the scope of American history and in relation to what other people were saying at the time, you can understand that there's a lot of consonance between what they were saying and what the traditional American foreign policy had been from the founding up through the end of the uh, 19th century. I think it's worth noting, just in order to detoxify them for people, the names of some of the people involved. So from politics, you have 
Gerald Ford, obviously, who eventually became president. You've got, uh, and then in terms of people who either belonged or supported it, because I, I don't think John F. Kennedy was out an outright member, but he did indicate his support. Then you had Herbert Hoover, you had Potter Stewart, who became a Supreme Court justice. You had uh, Robert McCormick of the Chicago Tribune, uh, Robert E. Wood, even from the business world, in, in, in well, actually many in the business world, in the world of, of literary uh, work, you have uh, Sinclair Lewis, for instance, E.E. Um, e. Cummings, Jack Kerouac, Kurt Vonnegut, Robinson Jeffers. These aren't nobodies. These aren't cranks and weirdos. These were ordinary Americans. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and uh, you, you mentioned Kennedy. Kennedy, I think his his association with it was t- to donate money to uh, America First. So he obviously wasn't out campaigning for them, but he was fairly young at the time. So that probably would have been an irrational expectation to begin with. But it wasn't, as you say, it's it, it's not people who are on the fringes of society. I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about Lindbergh, uh, Charles Lindbergh at some point. But even at the time, going into the 1940s, Charles Lindbergh was one of the most respected men in America. And so these aren't just cranks. Uh, you know, there were cranks in the movement, but that's not who made it up primarily. Let's talk about, I do want to talk about the coalition of people who were involved. But before that, I think it's more important to say what exactly was their position? What were they saying about what the U.S. should do with regard to international affairs? So that, it really varies depending on the approach to non-interventionism that the group, the, the different groups were taking. And also it sometimes differed on an individual basis. So you had some people who were pacifists who just didn't want to go to war ever. Um, you had some people who were uh, more interested in hemispheric defense. So that was a large portion and particularly uh, was the position of people who made up America first was uh, the idea of it's kind of a a callback to the Monroe Doctrine of, you know, we'll mind our business on this continent and we're going to let whatever happens in Europe happen because not really our business. And we're at a safe enough distance away from it that we can survive if things uh, deteriorate over there. You also had, at least at the beginning of the outbreak of war, communists who, uh, when Joseph Stalin and, and Hitler were partners in attacking Poland and dividing up uh, Europe, communists were opposed to intervention as, as well. And then obviously when Hitler turned on Stalin, they switched their position. And so it was a very wide range of, of people who were non-interventionist for different reasons. I think one of the best reasons that, uh, that they enunciated over the course of, of the battle over interventionism was the idea that war would grow the power of the state and it would uh, cause deterioration in traditional social institutions. And in a lot of those predictions uh, after the war, it was hard to say that the non-interventionists had been wrong. You quote a couple of people I like very much in describing the diversity of folks who were involved in this movement and the America First Committee. And one of them is Justice Donaghy. I got to meet him once, actually. He was, he's a great historian of this whole thing. And He says, pacifists and liberals assumed crucial positions in drafting position papers, uh, but the more vocal members were staunch conservatives. And then you have Robert Nisbet saying that the strongest resistance to intervention came, and these are his words, from those closely linked to business, church, local community, family, and traditional morality. 
kind of an interesting point. So what then would, would they say, what was the America First position then on measures short of war, which is what Franklin Roosevelt said he was supporting? He just wants to help the British, and then that way the Americans can stay out of the war. Is that all right? So there wasn't unanimity of opinion on those topics. I think that what was common to all of them was that there was a very strong distrust of Roosevelt and a trust in him to limit himself to measure short of war. And so I think that there was always this suspicion on the part of non-interventionists that everything that Roosevelt was doing was geared towards actively involving the United States in the war. And so when you uh, talked about what those measures short of war might be, and a lot of that had to do with supporting Britain as they were more or less standing alone against Germany, you had differences of opinion. So some people didn't want to help Britain at all, not because they, they wanted Britain to lose, but just because they thought it was unnecessary. Either they thought that Germany was destined to win or that Germany couldn't defeat Britain anyway, so there was no reason to give them support. Uh, you had other people who... Uh, intentionally wanted to support uh, the British, partly because they recognized that Germany was a threat to civilized people, and and partly because, as as Herbert Hoover said, that the American opinion was very strongly in favor of the British. So even at a time when roughly 80% of the population did not want to actively be involved in the war, you had large majorities who did want to support Britain in some way. And so Hoover thought that it was advisable to give the people of the United States some outlet to vent their uh, sympathies with the British. And they, he thought that something like Lend-Lease was a way to do that, where um, you could give moral and material aid to the British and kind of serve as that, that outlet valve for the passions that the people had in the United States for Britain. There's also the question of how the America First folks felt about the way FDR was carrying out his various policies and the the nature of those policies. So, for instance, there was the Lend-Lease Program. Now, I've got in my Politically Incorrect Guide to American History, I was kept to a very, very strict word limit. Uh, It had to be no more than 80,000 words for the whole book, which sounds like a lot, but it's not. And so for World War II, I had just barely the time to say what I wanted to say. So I had to really pack it in there with no fluff whatsoever. So I go through point by point all the different things that FDR did that, you know, were of dubious constitutionality or whatever. And I know some people would say, oh, who cares about the constitution at an emergency time like that? Yeah, I know, I know. That's what they always say. But there were legitimate reasons for saying, well, you shouldn't be doing this or you shouldn't be doing that. I mean, I think it was Claire Booth Luce who said something like, if, I mean, I'm, this is a real paraphrase, but if you really want to rally the country to war, then go ahead and do it. You know, go ahead and rally the country to war. Yeah. Don't be misleading them and then basically trying to maneuver them in by engaging in what are obvious provocations month after month after month. Just say we need to do this and have confidence the American public will make the right decision. Yeah, uh, and for people who question the value of constitutionality – and concerns about constitutionality at a time of emergency, it is worth remembering that FDR had been saying that there was a state of emergency since 1933. And so there was an entire six, seven year history of FDR doing monstrously unconstitutional things under the guise of, well, it's an emergency, so we kind of have to do it and worry about the law later. 
And so for the people who were at the time worried about that, it was it was as much reflective of their concerns just in general about the Constitution as it was about his history of subverting the Constitution during his entire presidency. And so that's not an irrational fear to to focus on that kind of of issue. But there was a lot of concern, even for people who were more or less inclined to go along with Lundley's, that it gave FDR basically dictatorial powers. And uh, Justice Donaghy wrote that the language of the Lendley's bill that gave FDR the power to um, give this aid to people who were fighting the Germans and their allies, the bill was phrased in such a way that FDR can interpret it in such a way that it could he could give anything to the people that he thought needed aid. So he, it could be uh, ships, it could be military secrets, uh, it could be anything. And and somebody made the point, I can't remember exactly who, but you could actually give away the entire army under the language of the bill, and that would be at FDR's discretion. And so th- there were some real problems with the language of the bill and with the scope of the powers that, that um, were given to Roosevelt. And the problem, again, was not simply that a president had these powers, because it would have been a problem for any president. But it was given to a president, they were given to a president that had already shown that he would take new power and expand it to their fullest scope. And so there was a real distrust of Roosevelt himself and and what his underlying intentions were. And even Roosevelt's defenders have have criticized Roosevelt for not being honest about what his true intentions were as he was pushing for these new powers and angling for the United States to be more overt and their support of the British than he was telling the American people um, was actually happening. Now let's get into the heart of the the question about, uh, well, first of all, let's talk about one of the accusations against the America First Committee at the time was that it was made up of Nazi sympathizers. And of course, we can't credit these people because that's, a moral, that's, a, that's an enormity. I mean, there's no way we can, anybody should respect an institution like that. What was the truth of that? So uh, one of the, ma- the the primary historians of the America First movement was Wayne Cole. And he did uh, a tremendous amount of research into this. And, and basically his finding was that there were uh, certainly people involved in uh, America First, or at least supportive of America First, that had Nazi sympathies or fascist sympathies. But he said that it was a joke to act like that was the primary driving force of that movement. The movement was made up of people who were genuinely concerned about American foreign policy, about what was going to happen domestically and around the world if the United States intervened. And uh, he he notes uh, in several cases the lengths to which the America First movement went uh, they went to to keep Nazis and fascists out of the organization. So um, there was a, an organization called the German American Bund, which was basically a front for uh, Nazi propaganda in the United States. And and America First people told them, "We don't want anything to do with you. Stay away. You're going to discredit our organization." The uh, the first press release of the America First Committee specifically said, "We do not want anything to do." with fascists or Nazis or communists or anybody who is 
um, guided by concern for anything other than American interest. And, and just over and over and over again, that the most important people in America first were open about rejecting any sympathies, any people who had sympathies uh, with the Nazi regime. And so I think ultimately you have to conclude that whatever influence there was, was incredibly small and was mitigated by the efforts uh, of, of the committee's leadership. And, and there are people who are going to say, but yeah, if, if there's any influence, then that discredits the organization. But I think it's worth remembering that at the same time, you had literally dozens of communists working inside Roosevelt's administration, helping to formulate foreign policy towards World War II, towards Soviet Russia. And those people, I think, were much more influential in guiding American policy and directing the, the, the path of interventionism than anybody who might have had some level of fascist sympathies was within America first. And so there, there's a um, there's a disorganized, a, a, a lack of appropriate response to both of those, the communists within the uh, administration of Roosevelt and whatever fascist sympathizers there might have been in America first. So I think a lot of that is, is terribly overblown. How did they respond to the argument that Hitler's regime was odious and, you know, and he was aggressive and, uh, you know, and so therefore it's, it makes sense that, that we should have a hostile posture toward him and, and we should consider war and all that. How did they respond to that? Because there's no denying those things. No, and, and they were perfectly open and in and, and their condemnation of Hitler. Uh, Lindbergh, who is, I think, most often accused of being a Nazi sympathizer was open in, in his denunciation of what Germany was doing in Poland, for instance. And so you had basically nobody in the non-interventionist movement who was openly saying that Germany was not at fault and, and had no problems um, that they would object, object to. I think the difference was that, first of all, they did not consider that this was an American problem. So, and a lot of that has to do with, again, understanding the continental U European history uh, for centuries past, where there were all these historic animosities between nations and peoples. And so they viewed World War II as not something new. It was just a continuation of the endless battles that have happened in Europe for, for centuries. And so uh, they were open to supporting the side that they hoped would win, which was Britain, but they were not interested in militarily intervening. And so that there's the primary difference is that it was not simply uh, that they didn't care who won, they did care who won. But it, the question was, what is the appropriate American response and what change can we affect? And, and Herbert Hoover was especially good on this topic where he said that you can't cure the problems of ideology with bombers and missiles, that there had to be a change in the hearts and the minds of people and that war can't bring that about. So we need to have a measured approach and a realistic understanding of what our military intervention is going to accomplish. Of course, as you indicated earlier, the man whose name comes up in this context most frequently is Charles Lindbergh because of some remarks he made about who was really beating the drums for war. And you address this in your article, and I'd like to have you say a word about it now. Yeah, um, I think the way that I phrase it in the article is that Lindbergh was extremely inarticulate as he 
uh, as he addressed this this question. So his comment was that there were a few different groups who were pushing America towards war. It was the British, the Roosevelt administration, and he and then he cited Jewish influences uh, in the United States. And he went on and and said that you know I don't hate the British, I don't hate Jewish people. I just you know I see this as this is who is moving the country towards war. And the reaction to that was was huge, both within and outside the interventionist movements. So outside, predictably, people said that, well, this just shows that everybody who is a non-interventionist is an anti-Semite and uh, only is fueled by this hatred of, of other people. And that's why they don't want to get involved in the war. There is some... I, and and I do think it's fair to criticize Lindbergh on on this count. Lindbergh seems to have been not necessarily great at choosing words. I think that there are real questions about his intentions to offend people with the speech. I don't think that that was his intention. And Wayne Cole went through this and and showed that afterwards the America First Committee came out and said, "Hey, we don't hate anybody of any racial or religious group. That's not what we're about. It's actually the other side that's injecting." this into the argument, the only thing we care about is the issue of war and whether or not the United States, based on its own interest, should be involved in the war. Uh, Lindbergh came out afterwards and said that his words had been misconstrued and that's not the way he intended it to come out. There is a lot of evidence from people who knew Lindbergh who said that he didn't have antipathy towards uh, Jewish people. And, and so there's a lot of credible uh, refutation to the idea that that Lindbergh meant this as as some sort of uh, racist remark, um, but it was unfortunately for him and for the America First uh, movement to it was unfortunate to give the opposing side the this ammunition that took the 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 focus off of the underlying issue and and put it on this, this thing that they could just color the entire movement with. And, and certainly that is what, what happened. The, the issue got diverted from whether or not there should be intervention to whether or not uh, everybody who was against intervention was a racist. I think it's hard for people to find sympathy for the uh, America First Committee just because they look at the way history came out and the, the U.S., well, the Russians primarily, but the U.S. defeated the Germans and there, an evil was wiped off the face of the earth. And there was a lot of, I mean, there's, there's no denying that that was a terrible evil and that it's a good thing that it, it doesn't exist anymore. And so it's hard to imagine, well, what if, what if we hadn't intervened? I mean, who knows what, what could have happened? And we already know what happened to the Jews up to that point. So what what other horrors might have happened in the absence of the intervention? It's a very hard question for a lot of people to answer, and I and I don't think it's an unreasonable question. No, I I completely agree, and and that's one of the the challenges of dealing with this this period from a non-interventionist standpoint is because if you if you come out and say, well, you know, the United States should not have been involved ever, then what people interpret whether or not you mean that. Um, is that you think that the United States should have done nothing about the Holocaust. And again, whether or not that's what you mean, that's an extremely difficult barrier to overcome. And I think it's, uh, it, it's, it's worth taking into account then that even if you think that 
American intervention was necessary to defeat the Nazis and completely agree that the Nazis needed to be defeated. You can look at the war and you can look at what the non-interventionists said was going to happen as a result of the war and not conclude that fundamentally a war is a good thing. And you look at specifically the way that Soviet Russia was empowered during the war due primarily to the way that Roosevelt um, negotiated with him, although I think negotiation is probably too strong of a word on Roosevelt's side. And you see all the oppression and all of the horrors that that regime um, then embarked on at the end of the war and after the war. In one case, at least one case, there was a German concentration camp that was just simply repurposed by the Russians, and they just put their own political prisoners in there. And so there, it is true that one tremendous evil in Nazi Germany was destroyed, but having one evil destroyed does not mean that evil itself was destroyed. And the way that I think about this is the locus of evil in Europe just simply shifted. It's shifted from Germany to Russia. You had the same problems, which are just the problems of mankind. It's it's just the problems that we deal with in human nature because we're fallen people and and that's something that we have to deal with. So evil itself wasn't destroyed, just this particular form of evil. And, and it was a vile form of evil, absolutely. But we have to reconsider the effect that the entire war had and really de-romanticize the notion that beating Nazi Germany, even though it was a worthy goal, did not fix all the issues and in, in particular did not fulfill the promises that Roosevelt and, and people in the interventionist camp uh, promised during the war and during the lead up to the war. You have a couple of very compelling quotations toward the end from prominent people looking back on the war and wondering about the long-term consequences and how good they were. I mean, again, these are these people I'm about to quote are not exactly pro-Hitler. That should go without saying. George <laughs> Kennan was the architect of the containment policy that dominated the Cold War for half a century. He's obviously uh, a main, as mainstream a guy as you could possibly ask for in the U.S. establishment. And he said... When you tally up the total score of the two wars, you find that if there has been any gain at all, it is pretty hard to discern. Now, that's not a crazy man. That's George Kennan. But then the other quotation is this. The human tragedy reaches its climax in the fact that after all the exertions and sacrifices of hundreds of millions of people and of the victories of the righteous cause, we have still not found peace or security and that we lie in the grip of even worse perils than those we have surmounted. That's Winston Churchill. Yeah. So, in other words, it is possible to be, uh, you know, not to be crazy and look back and say, well, even if we're glad at the outcome, we don't have to be at the mental level of a seven-year-old. We can also say that, as you say, we are confronted with the intractable problems of the wickedness that can lie in the human heart. And that if only it were possible to say that there's one magical policy that can obliterate that, but there isn't. And even even if you thought this was the best conceivable outcome and that it w- wouldn't have been better to let the totalitarians fight it out among themselves, even if this is the best conceivable outcome, this, there's no reason to go around uh, spitting on people who thought, well, if we could have had an, a, a, an approach to this that might have led to fewer than 50 million deaths, let's at least as a contrary to fact intellectual exercise think about it. Uh, that's I, I think we have to be a lot more humble in the face of the staggering human toll involved here 
you know, as opposed to saying that this is the only possible approach that could have been taken. The only possible approach leads to 50 million deaths. I mean, which, really? Like we can't even think of any possible other possibilities of of uh, of what what it might have looked like, for example, if um, if the Germans and the Russians had just fought it out. I mean, there are all kinds of of ways you can think about it. But unfortunately, we are not taught to think that way. If there's a righteous conflict, like, for example, with the war between the states, there you have a side that is obviously morally objectionable because of the institution of slavery. And it's perfectly understandable why somebody would say that institution has to be obliterated. But as of the – given the figures we now have, it's it's more than 630,000 deaths. It's more than like, like 800,000, not to mention just – decimation of all imaginable kinds suffered by all kinds of people and the deformation of the American government forever and the presidential office and war-making powers forever. When there were countless countries, almost every country in the Western – every country that in the 19th century ended slavery in the Western Hemisphere did it without a war. And just the idea that, well, Americans are so perverse, they're the only ones who have absolutely had to have a war, that just seems like careless thing. Can't we just think – or do we have to – like, for example, I'm, I'm talking too much, but I remember as a professor, I used to ask as a um, an exam question, an essay question, was the American Revolution inevitable? The answer was always yes. Every single student, the answer was yes because the way things actually turned out, people just assume is the way things they had to turn out, the way things had to turn out. They cannot conceive of another path. That was absolutely inevitable. There was no possible way around – Really? I mean, how can that be? The American Revolution absolutely had to happen. Why? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. It's um, it, there. There are interesting inconsistencies with the way that people think about history and then American history in, in general. So, if if you think that, for instance, Americans are so evil that we're the only people who needed a war to end slavery, how does it turn out that we are the only people who are righteous enough to go around the world in World War One and World War Two and bring righteousness to other continents? And so there's just there's a lot of of inconsistencies with the way that people think about our own role in the world and what the benefits of of war are. And I think that if you prioritize in World War Two, if you prioritize the destruction of Germany, if you I mean in and specifically the Nazi regime, uh, I, I think that you can still understand that in total war doesn't fix underlying issues so it can it, if there's something so monstrous as uh, the holocaust happening and you, and military intervention is the only way to bring that to an end then i see the the validity and the argument that all right let's go end it but it, there's no validity in the argument that and we brought peace and prosperity you know, Roosevelt talked about the four freedoms and how there's going to be no no more uh, fear and 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 all these kind of ridiculous Wilsonian ideas. And if we begin to understand that there's a limitation to what war can accomplish, that you've you've smashed, you've cut off one head of the serpent, but it's still got four or five other ones. Uh, you begin to to realize that there's a way to look at a topic like World War II that doesn't require you to sympathize with evil people, but that does help you to not romanticize the war itself and and overstate what it accomplished. And and I for the people who um, who think that way, I think it's telling that you know the the war on a on a at, at its beginning was intended to save Poland and China. Well, at the end of the war, Poland was lost. 
Poland, I mean, Poland had half of its territory or almost half of its territory taken uh, by the Russians. Um, China was completely uh, abandoned to the communists within their own country who were supported by Soviet Russia. Mao took over that country. Tens of millions of people died as a result of his, his regime. So, you know, if we cut the, the date off, the, the end date in you know August of 1945, then we can say, yeah, World War II was a smashing success and we ended these evil regimes. But if you expand your scope and you understand what happened after the war, you see all these problems that were there before are still there. And again, as, as you said, this is because it's in us, it's in human nature to be evil. And so you can't obliterate that with war. That has to come through more subtle forces. And so there's there's an, an, a case to be made for non-interventionism being proven by World War II, that even if you allow for uh, the involvement of the United States in the war, all of the arguments that the non-interventionists made about what was going to happen at home and, and the impossibility of destroying evil by military force, to a large degree, those came true. And, and that lesson, I think, is fairly well ignored by a lot of modern Americans. Tell me briefly about Austro-Libertarian, the magazine in which your article on this subject appeared. Sure. Uh, so Austro-Libertarian, this comes from the uh, spring edition, and the theme of the edition is uh, the ravages of world war. And uh, obviously this is the, um, the brainchild of uh, C.J. Engel, who's, who's been on a couple of times. Um, and so this is actually the spring issue is the first print issue of the magazine. There was a uh, digital only run back in the winter. And so there will be a summer edition coming up uh, in, I think, I believe, August. And this will be on socialism. Uh, there will be an interview with Gene Epstein in, in this one. And then there's also more changes and, and additions planned and, and more features and, and things like that, exciting stuff coming up. I have heard nothing but rave reviews about this publication. Absolutely nothing but rave reviews. You can get a digital version. This is 2019 after all. But for those <laughs> of you who still like holding a physical magazine in your hands, you can also do that. So it's definitely, definitely worth checking out. And of course, as you would expect, there is a coupon code. Coupon code WOODS. Go to austrolibertarian.com. Coupon code WOODS gets you $10 off an annual subscription. So come on now. I mean, how could you not do that? Austrolibertarian.com. Uh, ben Lewis, thanks so much for your time and for your interesting article. I appreciate it. Thanks, Tom. All right, folks, as I record this, it is June 6th, 2019, and we are down to just 45 seats left for our premiere, New York City premiere of the Housing Bubble documentary. So you've got to get your seat. That's June 26, 2019, tomwoods.com slash NYC. The panel that we're going to have afterward is hosted by Liz Clayman of Fox Business, and we're going to be joined by Peter Schiff, Gene Epstein, David Tice, and Jim Grant. It's going to be absolutely tremendous, but the seats are being snatched up. So you've got to hurry up and grab your seat over at tomwoods.com slash NYC. I'll see you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.